0: Hello and welcome to The Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Outra, the innovative medical nutrition company dedicated to improving patients' lives through specialized and affordable supplements. My name is Corinne Toyne and I'm a registered dietitian and marketing specialist at HRS Communications. We invite you to drop into The Dietitian Cafe as we discuss the latest nutrition trends, topics and research. Every month, two episodes are released. One is an interview with a featured guest, and the other a debate highlighting a hot topic in the world of nutrition and dietetics. However, before I start, can I ask you a huge favour? If you enjoy the Dietitian Cafe podcast, we'd be super grateful if you could press that follow button. More subscribers means more exciting guests and more interesting conversations for you, our listeners. Thank you. In today's interview episode, we'll be chatting with Alex Glover a senior nutritionist at Holland and Barrett, all about his journey into nutrition, where he started and how he got to working in the field of research and development for the largest health and wellness retailer in Europe. We'll discuss the experience needed to get into this industry and what a day's work looks like for Alex. We will then dive into the world of supplements, including topics such as, are they fad or science? And how you balance evidence-based research with consumer trends. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Alex. It's great to have you with us and thank you for joining me. Before we get started, I'll hand over to Alex to introduce himself.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So hi everyone. Um, so yeah, like um, my name's Alex, um, Alex Glover, um, I, my role at Holland & so I'm the senior nutritionist within the um, research and development team. So my role is really to, to lead all of the nutritional development for our vitamins business, sport and food. Um, so I'm very closely with our product development team, science team, marketing teams, lots of different teams to kind of make sure that we are developing um, the most he- health, healthy solutions for our customers and also actually to really champion evidence-based nutrition within the organisation. Um, obviously, Holland and Barrett recently, um, in the last kind of probably three years, have gone through a huge transformation as a business um, and being evidence and science-based is kind of a key strategic pillar for our business. So really kind of championing that from a from a nutrition perspective. A um, bit about my background. So I've got a master's degree in clinical nutrition from the University of Aberdeen. Um, the Rout Institute, uh, registered associate nutritionist and I've also got a level five um, advanced diploma in uh, advanced nutrition science as well as actually a bachelor's degree in business studies. Uh, so not nutrition but so we'll talk about that a little bit um, later on but yeah so that's a little bit about me.
0: Thanks Alex, wow it sounds like you've had a, a huge kind of educational journey even before you started your career. It sounds amazing like what a great mix of skills you have.
1: Yeah I mean it's a uh, I think it was certainly a, a quite a big U-turn in my career in terms of my certainly from an academic perspective. But I think I knew pretty soon when I started doing my undergraduate degree that this was not the degree for me. And I had kind of a, a background. So I did I had A-level biology and physics, so I had a, a bit of a science. A lot more interested in understanding in science. And I knew pretty much probably after three or four months that I didn't want to, to pursue a career in in which is strange that I'm working in business, but obviously working in a more science role but yeah
0: yeah fair play well that takes guts to know exactly you know what you want to do with your career and to change a path like that so kudos to you and i think we're going to get into that a little bit more as we go forward with this mm-hmm. conversation so should be a right. good one so as per every episode it's a tradition that we start with a few quick fire questions um just to get to know you a little bit better so the first one is, and this is my favourite, I love asking people this question because I think it says a lot about someone, but what would be your death and row meal? Oof.
1: I think maybe because it's top of mind and I had possibly one of the best pizzas of my life this weekend would be a Neapolitan-style pizza from Disco Pizza in Vienna because it is probably the best pizza I've ever had. Um, yeah, and I think just Napoli-style pizza, it's pretty impossible to go wrong. It's always incredible. It satisfies absolutely everything I want from food. I would say that. I think for me,
0: you just can't go wrong with pizza, can you? you? It's you just cannot. the best food ever.
1: Yeah, I think it's got it's got it's got everything. It's I would never. <laughs> it really and I think for dessert, if we're, if we're going for dessert as well,
0: yeah, go uh, for it.
1: it would have to be a probably a bit of an off-piece dessert, but a cinnabon, a hot, hot cinnabon. I think oh, it's just it's just <sighs>
0: I haven't had one of those in ages, making me really hungry.
1: For some reason, you can only get them at service stations in the north of England in the UK. For some reason, (laughs) Cinnabon don't seem to have made their way out of service stations in the north of England. (laughs)
0: There you go, Cinnabon. You heard it it here first. There's a demand. Please come down south. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and then the second question is, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would that be?
1: I think certainly it would be Vienna in Austria. I think it's just uh, for, for many reasons um which we won't go through this podcast but i think it's the most wonderful city in the world um and i have a very kind of strong connection to that city so i would absolutely love to live in vienna
0: sounds lovely i've heard actually some i know so much someone that does live in vienna and they say they have said how gorgeous it is so it was yeah, it was um, voted
1: the most livable city in the world again this year so again it's i'm not, wow. it's not just me who loves the city it's it's continually uh, praised for it just being amazing in every regard
0: Great, so let's move on to the podcast questions, if that's okay with you. Sure. Firstly, let's start with talking about your degree. So I know we just had a li- little bit of a chat about this, but we'd really love to know kind of what made that you kind of decide to begin working at Holland & Barrett back in 2018 after the mm-hmm. degree in business studies.
1: So while I was doing my business degree, um, I wasn't particularly happy. In terms of just my life in general, and doing this degree was didn't didn't fill me with any kind of joy, it didn't give me a sense of purpose. Um, and actually, while I was at university studying the degree, I became very very into my own health. Um, I was very very um, unwell, kind of the start of university and kind of towards maybe the middle of university, and I kind of went on a quite a, a big health journey. Um, and through nutrition and exercise, kind of really just completely fell in love with this entire space of nutrition and wellness and uh, just seeing how it could make me better Um, and I was like well this is and I became completely completely I don't like the word obsessed because it has a negative connotation but I was like how can I make this my career and while I was doing my um, undergraduate degree I actually signed up for the MNU certificate um, which is a a kind of nutrition it is now an accredited nutrition accredited nutrition qualification Um, and I was like this is absolutely something I want to do I had a background in I'd I'd done an A-level in biology and physics. And I was like, yeah, this is absolutely something I want to do. Um, So I did that and then finished that kind of towards the end of 2018. um, And I started working at Holland and Barrow. I think it was probably, when when did I start working at Holland and Barrow? Probably May 2018, June 2018, as a kind of an assistant nutritionist, junior nutritionist. Um, And it was more of a role of, because I'd kind of worked in Holland and Barrow stores while I was at university, and it was more an advisory role. So talking to customers about, about nutrition and kind of supporting with more of the kind of maybe social media, that kind of side of the business. Um, And as soon as I finished my MNU certificate, I knew immediately that I wanted to do a master's degree um, in nutrition. Um, And I'm very, very lucky and thankful to have studied at the University of Aberdeen, which is a leading university in the UK for nutrition science, had some some amazing mentors, managed to publish my own research off the back of my studies, Um, still involved in academia now in terms of actively involved in publishing research I'm um, looking to publish a study hopefully next year another uh, research paper but you know for me clinical nutrition was 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 an amazing thing to study it gave me such a an amazing um overview and insight into the subject um and I think where I studied it was 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 fantastic but that's kind of my my motivations were were several career and personal I suppose
0: yeah and was it being at Holland and Barrett then that made you kind of realized that a master's was the way forward what 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 is it what was it about working at Holland and Barrett that contributed to you then going on to study
1: if I'm being honest I don't think it was specifically Holland and Barrett that made me want to study I think the the motivation was very much intrinsic actually to study the master I think obviously Holland and Barrett certainly played a role as oh I'm working for a health organization having a master's is going to be really useful but actually I knew I wanted to do it for myself anyway um but I do think, obviously, from a, from a work perspective, having that master's degree is, is, is imperative, certainly to do the role I'm in, from a research perspective, having done research and worked for, a, worked for you know, a, well, studied at a, you know, a, a really influential research organization. But I think what made me want to do it was knowing that I wanted my career to be in nutrition, whether that's a whole, I mean, I'm still at Holland and Barrett, but, you know, whether that's a Holland and Barrett or not, I knew nutrition or nutrition science was what I wanted to do. And I knew having a master's was was critical for that.
0: Okay, so why research? What is it about it that you love so much? And why do you you want to pursue a career in that area?
1: So although being a registered associate nutritionist, I don't really practice as one. So I'm not a typical nutritionist. I don't really have much interest in working, you know, as a you know, public health nutritionist. If that makes sense, so I love nuance and science and research. Effectively, it's just what it's what gives me energy. It's what, what drives me. I love looking at associations and and statistics and confounding variables and designing research questions and methodologies. And it's just what really gives me that drive. Is to understand specifically the reason I studied chose clinical nutrition was I want to understand what makes people sick. I want to know how we can prevent these or minimize the risk of some of these you know really really important you know if we talk about the big four conditions that are burdening our society and I think research is the best way to do that in my opinion and I think it's certainly my the way my brain works it's the best use of my skills so that's specifically why I wanted to work in research for sure.
0: Great. so just going back in time a little bit and thinking about when you graduated university and then getting the job with Holland and Barrett. Could you tell us a little bit more about that route and how you initially started working for Holland and Barrett?
1: Yeah, sure. So when I initially graduated, I was actually working in the store as an assistant manager. So I was just working actually in a Holland and Barrett store. Um, just because I'd moved back home and I was like, oh my God, I need a job. Um, and I had applied for the job because so I thought, oh, you know, I, I really like Holland and Barrett. It's kind of, and I was really in that mindset of I want to work in health and nutrition. I thought, oh, Holland and Barrett's is a great company to kind of start with. Um, worked in store for a short amount of time, maybe six to eight months. Um, and then the job, I saw the job come up at head office, which my manager was like, oh my God, like you have, you have to apply for this. Like you'd be so good at this job. Like, and I was really, I was hesitant to apply for it to be honest. Cause I thought, you know, I'm not, I haven't got the experience. I haven't got the knowledge, but you know, interviewed for the job, went through the interview process interviewed really well. Um, and then started at the job. Um, and yeah. That's kind of the rest is history, I suppose, obviously with all the studying alongside, but, that's kind of the way I did it. So it was almost, I wouldn't say I fell into it, but actually I made the conscious decision. I remember, I very distinctly remember turning down lots of graduate programs at things, places like, I mean, I withdrew my application from Aldi, for example. I was on the, I got to the final stages of the grad scheme, at Aldi for their buying grad scheme. And I went, nope, don't want to do this. I can't see myself doing this. I, I withdrew my applications from lots of these traditional kind of businessy jobs. I went, nope, I'm going to go all in with this, whether it's, you know, and it's a, it's a risk, right? I mean, Aldi was a, would have been if I got that job would have been a huge difference for me. But, but yeah,
0: yeah, but you, you've got to trust your gut, which is a, yeah, I suppose, exactly. you know, as us and nutritionists would say. Mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, right place, right time, and it sounds as though you're kind of very um you trust your instincts,
1: which obviously so. has paid off. So I think so. Yeah, I've, I was. I've almost never been so sure of anything in my life that this is what I wanted to do. Um, yeah. And it was a risk, but thankfully, you know, I mean, it's been very difficult. I, I've, I've doing my studying has been, I, I, I've lost track of the thousands of hours that I needed to, because obviously I started from behind, right? I didn't do that undergraduate nutrition. So the amount of catch up I felt like I had to do was, was a lot. But I think, you know, certainly it's it's paid off for sure. Certainly after my master's degree.
0: Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you've got a fantastic role. So it's obviously paid off and you've clearly worked really hard. So, yeah, thanks for sharing more about your journey. So if anyone listening who is thinking about following a similar career path, what experience do you think, you know, helped you? And what would you recommend in order to get, you know, get someone else
1: to potentially make it into the R&D industry? Absolutely. My biggest tip, without doubt, I think that has made me in the position I'm in today is is having a sense of business pragmatism working in R&D. So I think my business degree actually really helped me here, actually. So it wasn't a useless kind of venture. Actually, when you're working for R&D, you're going to be typically working for an FMCG company, retailer, unless you're working for a public health body, it's very different. But I think if you're working for an FMCG company, you have to balance, we'll talk about later about balancing it, consumer trends and evidence. You have to weigh up evidence-based and commercial or business elements as well. So that would be the absolutely biggest tip to, to I think that would really make you shine as an applicant as an R&D interview to really have that knowledge obviously the technical knowledge is really important is, is the most important but really have it that was what that is what will set you apart from those other candidates is being pragmatic when it comes to knowing you're working for a business um, which I think a lot of technical people in my experience of working for the last six years sometimes that's their weak point for sure is that oh we should just do this we'll do this this is the best thing to do from a nutrition perspective. Actually, you need to have the whole picture of the entire business and how the business works. And I think that's my role specifically because I touch so many functions in the business. It's been really helpful for me to understand how marketing works, to understand how customer experience works, all these things that come together. Because r and or people think it's siloed. Absolutely needs to be integrated into everything. So that's absolutely the biggest thing. And again, from an experience perspective, look at the big company When you're doing, if you're doing a placement year, look at the big companies, the Mondelez's, the J&J's, the, you know, the PepsiCo's, these companies have got huge R&D capacities. You know, they've got amazing grad schemes and amazing kind of internship placements, things like that. But yeah, absolutely make a list of these companies as well. But also with r and I think as well, it's what industry, R&D is a huge topic. It doesn't necessarily just mean nutrition or pharmaceuticals. It's, you know, so many companies have R&D, whether it's pharma, nutrition, uh, chemicals, you know, everything has R&D. What sector do you want to work in? Because if you work at J&J, you're not going to be doing the same things as Mondelēz. You know, It's going to be completely different. So really understanding what, what part of R&D interests you. Is it the academic part? Is it just the R bit? You just want to do the R bit because then, then maybe the R&D isn't for you because actually R&D is a lot of development and research. So if you're just inter- interested in research, maybe just pursue the academic route. But yeah, that's probably mm. a quick yeah, two cents so- on it.
0: Excuse the pun, but a lot of research then to make yeah, sure that you're kind of absolutely. going into the right route. And the other thing that I think, um, just reflecting on what you're saying now, is I, I'm a big believer in um, kind of getting another sense of or side to you when you are going into a science role. So I have experience in marketing, for example, and I have mm-hmm. my background in dietetics. And I think that's benefited me hugely to create, you know, a, a, a niche and be a, a, a benefit to companies because you can kind of lean on, both of those skills but i think it's it's if you're because i don't have a business degree the only way that i kind of learned was really experience so i don't know if you agree with this Mm -hmm. but um industry placements Mm -hmm. and networking getting work experience in any way shape or form is a really good way to get that commercial experience and insight would you agree with that
1: i completely agree with you i certainly don't think you need a business degree i think most Most of the successful businessmen and business people in the world have have not got business degrees. Um, I think for me, it was just a kind of springboard, really. It was, oh, I've studied business for three years. Whereas, obviously, you can just learn that experience on the job. But I think it's really important because in R&D, you don't have to. You have to kind of be a bit more like networking and kind of asking the right questions, maybe shadowing people in the commercial team just to understand how they work and how you can work together because they'll be so grateful for it. I can tell you. Commercial people want to work with R&D. They want to create the best solutions possible. But sometimes I think that commercial acumen is lacking. But I think that's so important if you want to work in a commercial organisation.
0: That's really insightful. Thank you. I'm sure our listeners would be interested in knowing what a day looks like for you. So could you take us through a typical work day and tell us, is every day relatively similar or does it differ from day to day?
1: So it certainly differs from day to day. I would say, like because of the way the business is structured so tuesdays for example tend to be the much more collaborative days where maybe people are in the office or we have more kind of brainstorming sessions things like that monday is very much focused on trade and performance because it's the start of the week and then i try and keep friday as free as possible which tends to be quite difficult but try and keep fridays as free as possible to actually do some research and a big thing for me that i love to do is to actually just sit and read papers i'm currently reading i mean this paper was published actually when this is published 27th of October, 2023 on the clinical impacts of omega-3 fatty acids on depressive symptoms like a metronome. I love to make sure that I'm staying up to date with research and I try and keep Fridays to do that because I think to really lead an R&D function, you need to be at the forefront of what's changing in nutrition science, where the beauty of this science is so fast evolving. It's evolving every single day. You know, new studies come out and I think that's really important for me is to keep time aside, to keep up to date with research. Um, but for example, like Mondays, um, for example, like we're working on lots of different proto so because of my role is to lead development for the three main areas of the business. So food, um, the H M S vitamins and sport have various different touch points with those projects because we've got lots of different things going on in each of those three arms of the business. So making sure that we're kind of you know have the suppliers sent in the specs of the new products. What's the nutrition? Uh, what's the nutrition of these? Are they in line with our strategy? um is there any problems so we're developing you know huge new ranges in our food category I'm sure, i don't know if you've seen the kind of food relaunch that holland and barrow mm-hmm. have redone so that's just phase one say. there's phase two coming um so just really in the midst of development of all these new products so on site sometimes working with the suppliers to make sure we've got the right levels of ingredients vitamins is the salt content good enough is this yeah all these things so that's kind of a an everyday thing and kind of an overview of the week in general
0: It feels like Colin and Barrett are just constantly innovating, which is such an amazing environment to be in, I can imagine, as someone who works in research and development.
1: Since I joined the company, the change... I mean, when I joined the business in 2018, to the business now is almost a completely different company from a transformation perspective. I mean, food transformation is the first part of our transformation. There's going to be... All categories will be transformed. The whole business is... I mean, the whole business is being transformed. I think it is a really exciting time to be at Holland Bright, certainly to work at Holland Brad just to see the kind of all the initiatives that are going on um, and all the things that really hopefully will make a difference to people's health. I think obviously with the state of of public health services and burden on public health services and the, the role of nutrition and and wellness, um, I think it's going to become increasingly more important. Um, and yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's 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 really it's a really rewarding company to work for just knowing kind of the mission statement of the business and the kind of the purpose of the organization to exist as well.
0: Totally. And when you spoke about research then, and keeping up with um, the newest papers, do you set alerts on your computer? Like, would you recommend any websites to go to? Uh, I mean, there's so much research coming out every day, but what are your top tips for staying so, on top of the research?
1: Yeah, really good question, um, because there's so many ways you can do it. I mean, I have many ways that I do it. So actually, a really good way is Twitter. Follow the researchers on Twitter. Go on to Twitter. If I, I mean, there's my twitter is effectively just following researchers they will always tweet research tweet new research they're taught and then what's great about twitter is that the other researchers will reply and they'll talk about it and you can really get that straight from the horse's mouth approach to it on twitter amazing um google scholar i have alerts on google scholar for key things i'm interested in like um, plant-based diets and metabolic health things like that um i use um an amazing resource which i'm um, you know uh What was I going to say? No, sorry, Science Direct is another really good one. Mm -hmm. Science Direct, you can have alerts for Science Direct. Um, But also Instagram. Like, Instagram is an amazing tool for this. If you, again, people like um, Lane Norton, for example, on Instagram, hugely active, huge following, tweets, new research, posts about new research. TikTok, again, there's some amazing content creators on TikTok, breaking down research. Options are limitless
0: in TikTok,
1: isn't it? Honestly, TikTok has has really changed the game, I think, from a content mm. consumption perspective. Um, and I'm really impressed with some of the content creators on TikTok. Like some of the content they produce is absolutely exceptional. Um, mm. but yeah, and there's another another more specific to my industry would be nutraingredients.com. So that's mm-hmm. a kind of more nutritional stuff but again, that's how I found this at Omega 3 study, because they posted it this morning. I thought, like, oh cool. I'll look at this. Um brilliant. Yeah, those are kind of the main things I would use now.
0: Well, that's super useful. I'm actually going to be taking some notes after mm-hmm. I listen to this episode back and making sure I, I sign agree. up to all of those. So thank you.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: So let's dive into the world of supplements. Colin and Barrett have a very large range of offer. I know you just mentioned some of the innovations in the pipeline. To what extent would you say that supplements are a key component of a healthy lifestyle?
1: Wow, that's a really good and very important question because I think – it's a very nuanced thing when you look at up on a population level. I think certainly if we if we kind of steer this conversation more towards a Western dietary pattern and a Western lifestyle, I think need is a, is a is an important thing to to caveat here because actually people have different needs, right? People have different needs. Nutrition is a very personalized and, and health is a very personalized topic. I think certainly there are some supplements I would say everyone needs vitamin D, probably being well, being top of that list. Everyone needs to take vitamin D in the winter, unless you're a penguin eating huge amounts of salmon every single day, which has its own risks. Um, But in terms of, actually, my view on this is probably a little bit different to to what you might think. Do I think everyone should take a supplement? No, like a multivitamin, for example. But the way I would look at something like a multivitamin is insurance for your car. Actually, are you confident that every single day you're eating absolutely everything you need? Because, I I mean, we've got nutrition backgrounds. I know I don't, every single day. So I take a multivitamin because it's an incredibly cost-effective insurance policy for me. Do you need a multivitamin to be healthy? No. And the data probably supports that because multivitamin supplementation is not really associated with health outcomes when we look at outcomes. However, when I've worked with people in the past, I think it's a good catch-all recommendation. As long as it's not a super high high dose multivitamin, I think it's fair. Again, other supplements that I think are pretty beneficial, things like omega-3, We have one of the lowest rates of omega-3 consumption within Western Europe. Um, And we do know there's lots of other... I just spoke earlier about omega-3. Omega-3 has lots of benefits and a lot of people don't have a particularly good omega-3 index in this country. And again, it's a cost-effective, very safe supplement that's really easy to incorporate into your diet. So yes, I think supplements are a really important aspect of maintaining a healthy lifestyle for some people because they might need to supplement things. But what I think the problem with supplements... Is that some people rely on them as a? Oh, I've taken my multivit today. I can just go and eat whatever I want because I've got all my vitamins. I'll go and have a McDonald's. No, that's not what it's for. It's an insurance policy. It's eat your normal, healthy, balanced, varied lifestyle and have this multivitamin just to plug in any gaps. That's the way I think about it. It's plugging in gaps. It's not the bottom of the pyramid. It's the top. That'd be the way. That's I think a
0: really nice it. way of putting it. Yeah, I've never heard it. I heard about it. Or put in that way before in terms of it being insurance, but yeah, yeah I agree. I totally agree, and I and I, I should say this as a dietitian, but I do try and take mm-hmm. vitamin D every day, and um, sometimes I take multivitamins as well. You know, I think it's good, as you say, just to kind of top up, not to replace, but to top All up. So. There you
1: go. That's I love that top up, not replace. Really, that's yeah. that's a really <laughs> that's a really nice way to sum it up
0: and there has been research into supplements and the benefits for our health which i'm sure you are you know, an expert in but a lot of people do still consider supplements a fad mm-hmm. do you think that there is enough good quality evidence to suggest that supplements are beneficial for our health and can the evidence be generalized or are the findings specific to certain groups of the population
1: i think that's a, that's a brilliant question um i think absolutely When we look at certain supplements, there is really strong evidence that these are of benefit to our health. I don't think we certainly couldn't say that for all supplements, because otherwise all supplements would probably be medicine. But actually, I think if we look at, I mean, we could probably use a specific example. We would talk about vitamin D and omega-3. Maybe we could at something a little bit more off-piste. So maybe something that's not an essential component of the diet. So a very popular supplement at the moment is ashwagandha, for example. So actually, when you look at the clinical research, the outcome-based data, you know, the gold standard clinical trials in ashwagandha, for which there are 30 plus, actually, we do see that there is a statistically significant effect for a variety of different health outcomes when supplementing with ashwagandha. Does that mean everybody should take it? No. But actually, for a specific group of people who have a specific health need, is there evidence to suggest that this supplement has a benefit? Yes, there actually is. But I think the, the the key here is applying that really critical appraisal to every to every supplement, because I'm sure, you know, TikTok, we talk about TikTok, social media. And there's a new supplement every day when you go on social media. There's a new wonder cure. But actually, how many of these stand up to the scrutiny of evidence based nutrition? Not all of them, but certainly some of them. I think another good example would be something like lycopene, for example, lycopene, which is obviously found in things like tomatoes and watermelon actually supplemental lycopene has been shown to support our skin's uv defenses and reduce the inflammatory response to uva radiation and as a supplement it's i wouldn't say better to take it as a supplement but actually you'd have to eat probably i think it's about a kilo of tomatoes every single day to get an efficacious dose whereas you could take a concentrated 15 milligram supplement and he saves you eating a kilo of tomatoes um so i think it's a really nuanced question but certainly the evidence cannot be generalized as part of your question absolutely not the evidence must be specific to the need of the consumer who wants to take the supplement and to the level of evidence that that supplement has
0: mm-hmm. And i suppose for certain population groups so vegans for example they are categorically not going to be getting enough of certain vitamins and minerals so they mm-hmm. there is a clinical need for them to replace you know what they're missing out from the diet with a supplement and in those instances obviously you know, you hope the evidence is, is strong enough to to recommend certain uh, vitamins but yeah, obviously, there's certain clinical needs in some people.
1: Yeah, completely. I okay, that's a great example. I think especially with the, the kind of the more popularism of plant-based diets, I think everyone probably is, I'd hope, is aware about B12. But then other things about mm. b like iodine is another big one that the BDA have flagged recently and and does some really good kind of research and kind of public information about iodine. Zinc would be also be something I would flag calcium. You know, there's, there's so many different things that you need to consider. But I think, again, something I'm particularly interested at the moment from my the research I'm doing is looking at the elderly. And looking at actually what other compounds can benefit so creatine omega-3 protein timing protein feeding these are still like the leucine for example so leucine is obviously one of the essential branched-chain amino acids actually there's some really good evidence that supplemental leucine in an elderly population can improve muscle function and reduce rates of muscle um, protein um, breakdown the supplement so i think absolutely there's so much fascinating research in different specific groups children is there, uh, there's a massive study going on at the moment at Stanford University looking at the impact of probiotic supplementations in children who've been born by a cesarean, by a via cesarean, via C section? And can these probiotic interventions as supplement improve outcomes? Obviously, it's ongoing, but there's so much going on. But I think for me, the is the our ability as nutrition professionals to scrutinize this evidence. Um, and how do we apply that to a population? So from a recommendation perspective, I think that's that's really key role for, for mm-hmm. us as nutrition professionals. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. Right. So, the regulatory side of things. Then, so obviously, supplements are very tightly regulated. But are you able to share a bit more information about how reg- sort of regulated they are? Who's involved? Yeah, with the, all the yeah of course. So,
1: so uh, within the UK, um, we're still in a bit of a transition period. Obviously, after after our unfortunate departure <laughs> in tw- in 2020. Um, so, actually, we are still kind of bound by all of the European Union. Laws when it comes to regulating food safety. So, the European Food Safety Authority, which is EFSA for short, um, have all of the health claims made on. So, when you see, when you walk into a supermarket and you see immunity, supports your immunity or um, supports your joints, these are claims made from vitamins and minerals that are on the, and you can look at this as a publicly available list if you go onto the EFSA, Nutrition and Health Claims Register. You can look at everything that's approved for each vitamin, vitamin C and immunity, vitamin D and bone health, et cetera. So when you see any product in the UK that's making a health claim about something like immunity, you will see it linked to a nutrient. It will say immunity, asterisk, vitamin C contributes to the normal function of the immune system. So that's a I would highly recommend that list is really useful to look at, especially looking at products. Um we have the in the UK specifically, we have obviously the food safe, the food standards agency, sorry. And the MHRA, so the MHRA more to do with the food supplements and medical device side, but the FSA um, will be the ones kind of enforcing um, compliance to the laws set by EFSA. So they're kind of the local body that enforce the laws by EFSA and the MHRA are there in terms of um, claims and medicines. Um, But it it is a very regulated space. Um, So in terms of safety upper limits of vitamins and minerals these are all set by the mhra um, so how much of a vitamin you can include or how much of a mineral you can include and in terms of botanical ingredients so we mentioned ashwagandha so lots of botanical ingredients in the market i don't know if you've seen the news about cbd recently about the fsa they had a, a big up in arms about cbd um, so this is all set by these in terms of what ingredients are safe to include within foods and food supplements because it is different so what you can include in a, in a pill is different to what you can include in a food because there are different legislators called Novel Foods, essentially, um, so lots of regulations specifically in the UK. But currently, we are still um, following the same rules as the European Commission.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you have a big regulatory team at Holland and Barrett that you work with? Do you kind of consult them? Do you, you say you have an idea at the product development, you know, beginning stage, would you consult them first and say, this is our idea, what do you think, and then try and comply with regulations and then get it approved? Or how how does that process work?
1: Yeah, so we've got an internal regulatory team, so quite a large internal regulatory function, maybe uh, eight or 10 people. And then we also have an external regulatory agency as well, just as a kind of, we like to be, we like to have the most scrutiny to our from a legal and safety perspective as a business. So we have two regulatory functions and yeah, absolutely the, the regulatory team will be involved from the conception of the product. We will review what claims we want to make on that product. Can we make that claims? If not, how can we make those claims? Is the product safe? Specifically when we're looking at t- uh, vulnerable groups, so, for products targeted for children or pregnant women, for example, um, so vulnerable populations, absolutely the regulatory team will be will be critical there. Um, but the regs team will sign off absolutely every single product that you see on our sh- on a, on the right shelf has gone through at least one regulatory approval, usually two or three.
0: Well, good to know. What do consumers need to look out for? And on top of that, what do dietitians or nutrition professionals need to be aware of when advising their patients? I think
1: what you need to be aware of is what is right for you there is not a catch-all approach there is not a one-size solution for everything in nutrition i think being aware of certainly is being aware of no notur- uh, spurious claims or fads things that have come out of nowhere and sa- and also I, i'm a firm believer in this if something sounds too good to be true it probably is because if it was that easy like there's you know you see supplements claiming to Or interventions. Oh, just do this and X, or two glasses of red wine a day reduces your risk of X. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I mean, the the problem we have is that specifically in nutrition research, reporting on nutrition research is so poor. When you look Mm -hmm. at headlines of studies that have come out, and it's reporting a relative risk, but the absolute risk. So, oh. Oh, I think I saw one recently that was drinking, I think it was red wine. It was drinking two glasses of red wine a day reduces your risk of dying by 45%. But that was a relative risk. And your absolute risk was something absolutely minute of 0.4% absolute risk or something like that. So it's being mindful that when a tabloid reports nutrition, I would say 99% of the time, it's probably not nuanced enough to make any pragmatic conclusions to your own diet on. Um, so f- making sure that you're getting evidence from the right people really making sure that there's not TikTok influencers who don't have any nutrition qualifications or background, um, be really being mindful of what content you're consuming as well. Um, because there's a lot out there that's really... That a lot of content I see at the moment, especially from mainstream media, has a veil of science and they use big words and they use things that sound really impressive. But actually, when it comes to nutritional scrutiny, maybe not.
0: 100%. It's so difficult, isn't it? as a consumer to navigate the world of nutrient nonsense, as I like to call it. Love and that. I think I <laughs> do I do empathize a lot with the general public because obviously we've had so much training in nutrition that mm-hmm. it's kind of obvious to us when these headlines come out, we're like, that's obviously false. But if it's attractive enough for people to buy the magazine or the paper, then, you know, it's probably attractive enough to believe in the sense of, okay, they're telling me that I should eat butter all the time, so I will. And it's just yeah. such a difficult environment um but i suppose that all we can do is get involved with media as much as possible as nutrition professionals and yeah. um, and uh help navigate that
1: situation so i always use yeah. i always use my poor grandmother as an example because she's this person who will see every headline and be like oh my god i need to stop eating this i need yeah. to do this and it's it's just it would be honestly the noise is is, is deafening it, i yeah. would really and i really empathize with people who want to make change but don't know how to because mm. they yeah, eat eggs. Don't eat eggs. you like, it's 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 Literally. just impossible. Every day is different, and it's salt. Yeah, is great for us. Salt is bad for us. Saturated fat is bad. Saturated fat is good. It's oh my god. Yeah, um,
0: it's confusing even for us.
1: <laughs> yeah, it makes me question it. I know I had. A big thing for me when I was studying was what is the role of, I mean, is it saturated fat, saturated fat and health. I mean, I've completely changed my view because initially I thought maybe it's not as bad for us as I thought. Now I'm absolutely firmly in the camp of because of all the the noise, I was I was kind of lured in by the noise. Mm. I was like, ah, oh, actually, this is interesting. But now, you know, when you really dissect it, the association is clear. But yeah,
0: very true. But yeah, great advice. Be careful who you listen to, and mm. yeah, just take more ownership for kind of the voices that you listen to, especially on yeah. social media. And on that note of consumer uh, topics and trends, you've mentioned a, a really interesting trend there, healthy aging, which I think mm. is a really interesting um, space of innovation at the moment. I think a lot of brands are, are trying to fulfill the demand there. How do you manage ba- and you know have balancing evidence-based research with consumer trends and, and meeting consumer demand whilst mm. maintaining your kind of scientific credibility as a company?
1: I think it's it's a really challenging, um, a really challenging work stream a lot of the time actually, because obviously I think consumer trends sometimes they match up with a, with evidence base, but sometimes they don't. Um, I think it's being really, really selective and careful about if you're maybe I mean, for me it's at first do no harm, specifically when it comes to consumer trends, if there is something that's potentially harmful, that's absolutely first port of call. If it's potentially harmful supplement or a intervention, absolutely no. But I think for me as well is really about in, tra- in training levels of evidence within a business and how different levels of evidence say different things. Because, you know, again, back to the media, they might report a study that was a case control study or a rodent study or in a fruit fly. And oh, my God, you see this a lot with really popular supplements. The X supplement extends lifespan by 80 percent. And it was in a yeast or a C. elegans. And actually really about for me, I think a big part of my role is really educating other people within the business about what is a what is a good study what constitutes good evidence what can we really be sure that is robust in terms of a clinically clinically, i think clinically meaningful outcome is really important here because actually something can have an effect is that going to be meaningful to a population um maybe not um but i think consumer trends i've I've seen certainly in the last few years are actually thankfully moving towards that healthy aging is a huge one at the moment i mean long the concept of longevity and how we can live I mean, our business's mission business statement is to add healthy years to life. But I certainly think this is by far the biggest trend I'm seeing within nutrition at the moment. Um, and I'm really happy with that because there is lots of things that we can do from an evidence-based perspective to add quality years to life, um, specifically from a nutritional and exercise. And I think exercise is a really important one there as well. Um, but I think when you're saying about have we followed any consumer trends? Yes, we're obviously we're a, we're a consumer-led organization as well as being science-led. But I think what I really value about Holland and Barrett now is actually because the science function is so ingrained into product development and product selection that actually from a claims perspective, we're really selective on product claims. So if something is a emerging trend and maybe the evidence is there but it's not robust enough, then we're very we market that product in a very different way. Um and really again. A really big asset, I think, for for H and B as a business is the whole is the learning and development function. So the training the store colleagues have to go through um, to to kind of advise customers is really is really thorough. Um, yeah, that's kind of I would say.
0: That's really interesting take as well about your role, not just educating the consumer, but it, internal education, stakeholder management. That is a really good skill to have um, yep. across any corporate company. But because of your science experience, you can totally see why now your masters. Is, is so aligned to your role because you are able to understand whether something, as you say, is actually meaningful, which it makes all the difference. So that's great to hear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's certainly, but again, a pl- a really, because I think what frustrates commercial people about science people sometimes in a business is just saying no. For me, if I'm saying no, it's giving a reason why, right, what can we do instead or why? It's not just being a blocker. I think sometimes, other people in the business oh they just they just say no because blah 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 but actually he's really working with people not against them especially when it comes to trends because some trends are you know, huge i mean you can't ignore certain trends like collagen for example collagen everything protein i mean proteins the biggest trend in nutrition from a from a food development perspective i think i've ever seen there is protein everything now i think you see protein i saw protein sweets in germany not long ago wow. like literally a tube of haribo that had a protein claim on it um But yeah so following those trends is important but I think certainly if you use protein as an example why is that beneficial for the customer because putting more protein in something is probably for most people not going to be a bad thing but actually what does that mean to someone is consuming a protein bar better than consuming a Mars bar it's our job as a development developers and nutrition professionals to help customers make that decision.
0: Great and on the note of of blockers and uh, things that may get in the way what would you say are the biggest challenges of your role and how do you navigate these?
1: And the biggest challenges of my role certainly would be sometimes developing the most evidence-based solution isn't the most cost effective because you want to use the best ingredients that have got the most clinical evidence and that come at the biggest cost so actually, for me, sometimes it's about what are if we're developing a mission-based. So we, we, when I say mission, sorry, I'm talking about immunity, joint health, uh, gut health. These are what we call missions. When we're looking at developing a solution for a mission for a customer, what are the non-negotiables? What are the, the the rocks, not pebbles, is the kind of analogy that my my amazing manager likes to use. Rocks, not pebbles. So, what are the non-negotiables, from an ingredient perspective or from an intervention perspective? What works? Um, and I think that's how you can overcome those challenges commercially from developing amazing products. Because, you know, we could develop the most amazing products in the world, but if a customer's gonna have to pay sixty-five, seven stupid amounts of money for them, then they're not the best products in the world. Because actually, even though nutritionally they might be, customers can't afford them. So actually for me, the biggest challenge that or the biggest hurdle to overcome is how do you develop evidence based, efficacious solutions to customer missions while also being attainable to people? Because they are it is quite difficult a lot of the time to do that. Why you see a lot of supplements, people think, oh, supplements are so expensive. Sometimes price does matter. And actually the better supplements are, sorry, the more expensive supplements are better, not always, but it's certainly a a really important consideration from a development Mm -hmm. perspective, absolutely.
0: And in a growing industry, what do you think about the future of supplements? Is there anything that you're particularly excited about or hope to work on?
1: I think the area of nutritional supplementation is seeing yeah, like you say, huge growth every year. I think the re- it's certainly accelerated post pandemic. Um, we've certainly seen a a big uptake in people being more cognizant of their kind of prophylactic health, effectively using nutrition and supplements as a prophylactic um, intervention for them. Um, I think the future of supplements, I hope, on which I'm what I'm seeing, you know, I've been to trade shows this year, is actually science based and evidence based is becoming a lot more as a I'm, I'm really hoping it is becoming a hygiene factor. So it's almost a non-negotiable. If a new supplement comes into the market, if it's a national, like, I don't know, collagen, then it is evidence-based and it has some clinical research behind it. I think in terms of particularly excited about, we've talked about longevity a lot, but I think something I would certainly add would be the impact of the gut microbiome on health. I think certainly from my perspective as a, having studied clinical nutritionists, we don't understand if the gut is a mediator or a bystander of the association of health. And I think there are some really interesting supplements from a gut health perspective um specifically prebiotic fibers so look at the impact of certain prebiotics on i think outcomes is tricky from a gut health perspective because we don't really have a good idea about gut and outcome but what we do know is that certain prebiotics are have an affinity for certain species and there's of bacteria within our microbiome and there's lots of really interesting research going on with specific types of fiber and their affinity to help proliferate different species in our gut um so some really cool research that i'm kind of looking into at the moment with certain types i mean the the really popular one at the moment in the food industry is inulin you're seeing inulin i mean general mills with fiber one bars you're seeing inulin if you look at anything with a gut health claim probably has chicory inulin in it but actually for me that's quite simplistic it's one fiber and yes it has some evidence to support an effect in in stool frequency and, and bifidobacterium proliferation but actually what's next for gut health i think there's loads of really cool research going on I think, finally, just one thing I'm also really excited about in terms of is, is cosmetics. I know, interesting, but actually beauty from within. So actually, we, we've seen a lot of in terms of the cosmetics industry about things like retinol and hyaluronic acid, but there's some really cool research going on with e- eating yourself. I, I, I hate this because it's, it's, it, I hate this word, but it, this is the trend. is eating yourself beautiful. Everyone is beautiful, but it's <laughs> kind of how we look after our skin from our diet. So the, the role of things, anthocyanins in beauty, we also mentioned lycopene. Um, there's some really uh, collagen, huge trend. What is the role of collagen for, for looking after our skin? But I think collagen probably ties into longevity a little bit from an ageing point of view, because there's loads of cool research going on um how we can reduce rates of skin ageing from, from our diets as well.
0: Absolutely fascinating. Just like, Hearing you talk, there's just so many exciting things going on. So very exciting cool. things happening at Holman Barrett. And lastly, just out of interest, what is your favourite product produced by Holman Barrett?
1: Oh, my favorite product by Holden Barrett. If it's an own label product, it would probably, oh, that's a really good question. It's going to have to be some sort of food product because I seem to never stop eating. It's probably the new, I actually have, to... it's like a blue Peter moment. Here's one I prepared earlier. I've actually got one in front of you. <laughs> it's our new kind of protein mixes, savory protein oh, mixes. Nice. So they're a mix of like roasted peas uh, and faba beans. Um, no added salt. Tastes amazing. Great. Just, I always have one by my desk and I think that's certainly the product I buy all the time.
0: Sounds delicious. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much, Alex, for coming on to the podcast today. It was so great to discuss uh, everything about Holland and Barrett with you. Great to have you on. And a huge thank you to New Altra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend or colleague who you think would find it interesting. Our next episode of The Dietitian Cafe will be out very soon in the meantime, you can check out our previous episodes or head over to our RD to b dietitian cafe podcast, where once a month, our student dietitian host discusses the world of dietetics with a range of guests, all aimed at aspiring dietitians. Thank you for joining us at the dietitian cafe and see you next time.